Um, before I start this morning, I, I just want to say that God is always good to draw near to us when we draw near to Him. It, it is His will that we be close to Him. It is His will. It is, it is not His heart to hold us at arm's length. It is not in His uh, desire to, to cause us to be guessing about how He's feeling about us. It is God's will that we know Him and the power of His resurrection. It is God's will that we understand who He is as our sovereign. It is God's will, then, that we live from the power of His Spirit. That is God's will. That that I've just described is the normal Christian life. Everything lower than that is what we would call a subnormal Christian life or an abnormal Christian life. I'm going to be talking today about our holy God. And it's a simple, simple subject that I can't escape. And I had to get alone just to remember to be, to be reminded to keep the mandate. We, we as a congregation, and not just us, but we as a congregation of Christians in this nation and even abroad have got to come to understand that we live and move and have our being before a very holy God. Above all preeminently He is holy. And as His people, we too are called to be expressive and and uh, demonstrative to that end of that holiness. Charles Spurgeon said, It will be a sad day for the church and the world when there is no distinction between the children of God and those of this world. And yet we see that happening more by the week. JT was sharing with me, Apparently, the, uh, the Episcopal Church has designed an app whereby you can go on that app and design your own God, your own faith. And apparently, in the infrastructure of that, you can take bits and pieces of various things that you like and you can construct your own belief system. We're not called to syncretism. In fact... We're called to be distinct from the world by being, I don't know what the opposite of centristic is, but I would say very monolithic, if you will, uh, towards one true God. And that God is very, before anything else, holy. It will be a sad day for the church and the world when there is no distinction. That word distinction means a lot to me. I've used it a lot in my writing because I see it as that which demonstrates the uniqueness of God's people in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. But beginning in the Old Testament, that they were the people of God. Distinction. What makes them distinct? We use things for distinction all the time in our world today. Law enforcement are generally distinct by the uniforms they wear. You have your highway patrols and their Smokies. Unless you're in Texas, I guess they wear cowboy hats, which, you know, be more functional to have a Smokie. But uh, you have uh, um, uniforms for military. 
judges generally, known by the distinctive robes, their distinctive black robes, magistrates. Some preachers and, and clergy wear robes too. Uh, I guess professors used to wear robes. But there's distinctions by the way uh, we, we, we approach, we appear. The distinction that God calls us to though is deeper than what clothes and wardrobe can bear out. It's a distinction of a ray of God emanating from us. And that distinction should be one of the greatest heart cries we have as children of God to demonstrate. Distinction. Holy distinction. It grieves my life when I don't present with that distinction. Lest I take away or rob God of that which is rightfully His as He seeks to exude through me. Don't want to be a reason for anybody to not know Him. And yet sometimes I am. And that grieves me. So to that I want to talk today again about our, our holy God. In honor of God and His Word, let us stand. First Samuel chapter 6, verse 20. Uh, you can look at the screen or you can look in your Bible. Depends on how good your eyes are. Well, I guess in both directions. This is a short verse. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And to whom shall it go up from us? Notice the question though. It's right there. Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? Let's pray. Father, as we come to you, we come to you knowing that you are holy. And we are not. Yet, for those of us here who know Christ, we've been declared saints. Saints of God. By the righteousness of Christ. Through the shedding of His blood on our behalf. And through the consecration imparted to us by the Holy Spirit. It is our desire, Lord, to understand this more today. As we look into your word and we ask that you would please take your word. Apply it to our lives. Get it down deep. Get it under the edge. And pry up. And then Lord, take the other verses and shove it deep. And, and open up the space that we've often kept closed. So that we would know you and the light of the word of God to our soul. You are our Lord God. You are holy and you are sovereign. And we live in a corrupt world that's doing its level best. Doing its level best to corrupt your people and to corrupt light. God, teach us how to be distinct. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. To illustrate, if you have in your Bible, I'd want you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 4, 5, 6, and 7. And I'm not going to read all of that. We just don't have time. But that's where we're going to be in discussing our 
holy God. Okay? And I think to even say those words, our holy God, should cause us to set more upright and to have a little bit of reserve in us to make sure that we listen as though He truly is our holy God. A.W. Pink wrote, The God which the vast majority of professing Christians love is looked upon very much like an indulgent old man who himself has no relish for folly, but leniently winks at the indiscretions of youth. But the word says, you hate all workers of iniquity. Psalm 5 verse 5. And again, God is angry with the wicked every day. Psalm 7 verse 11. But men refuse to believe in this God and gnash their teeth when his hatred of sin is faithfully pressed upon their attention. I thought that was very sobering. He finishes by saying, Because God is holy, the utmost reverence becomes our approaches to him. In other words, when we approach God, it is important that we approach reverently. We don't understand reverence much in our culture. We've lost sight of it even more, if you haven't noticed, by looking around at the youth of our day. Only, only a relative few have been trained and taught in what it means to show respect and courtesy. But reverence is above that. Bible says in Psalm 89.7, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints. That would be here. And to be held in reverence by all those around Him. Our holy God. In Leviticus chapter 10, as we're getting to our focus passages, there's an incident that happened. And it stuck with me for a long, long time since I've read it. It's about Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron. It says that each took his censer. Uh, uh, it was a canister with a stick on it. <laughs> and it had incense in it. And they would light it and they would burn it. And, and this was part of what uh, they were supposed to do uh, in, the, in the worship of, of the Lord God. And they, 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 each man took his censer, put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered, it says, profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them to do. Now, I know and I realize that a lot of you may not really understand all that that entails, but I think you should at least from the text see enough to say, well, clearly, it wasn't something they were supposed to do. I remember, well, some, t- some of us older folk, older than me even, we used to get whoopings with belts, okay? And, uh, and dad, my dad would often say on the way around, because it was a circular motion, as he whipped, I went around, because he held on with one hand, <laughs> okay? Boy... When I tell you to do something, I mean do it. And the opposite of that is true. 
If I tell you not to do something, I mean, don't do it. Okay. God did not, had not told them, apparently, to offer this fire. They did it. They presumed to do it. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them. And they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. I think this is why, in the founding of the new church, the infant church there in Jerusalem, when Peter was preaching, and the people were bringing their gifts, and Ananias and Sapphira had had, uh, schemed together to sell their land and keep back some of the proceeds, but pretend to have given it all. They came presumptuously before the Lord and they dropped dead. And what did Peter say? You have not lied to men, but to God. And the question that's even more intriguing before that is he says, why have you uh, uh, connived together, agreed together to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to men, but to God. Therefore, the Holy Spirit is God, right? So this vert that that example, and of course there's other ones where there says that around the Lord's Supper, which we often take periodically, in that whole narrative that happens there in Corinthians, Paul says, There are many who among you are have fallen asleep because you have insisted upon eating the drink, taking the cup of the Lord and 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 taking that that fellowship communion cup presumptuously with sinful motives with no respect with no reverence and some of you have died he said that would make communion services a lot more sobering if you thought well what happened then well they went to communion they didn't come back whoa i'm not going down there to take communion be quite honest i think it would be a blessing of god to have such Presence among us that should some of us drop dead, it might cause us to go, "Mm, this isn't just something we do. This is real. This is a picture. We are not to profane it with an unclean heart. So this goes back to Leviticus. By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. This is what Moses said that God told him to say to Aaron Tell him this, because your two boys over here are charred pieces of charcoal because of it. They took it upon themselves to serve God the way they thought they should. You say, well, and as I've been working through it, like, do I do that? You know, you got to ask the question, do I do that? Sometimes I do that. How do I do that? Well, when I casually pick up my Bible, I say, oh, i got to read my Bible for the day. I'm in a hurry. Well, I'm just going to read these verses. I'm reading it, but my heart's a million miles over there. I'm like, okay, i got that done. And if that's my attitude, I've come presumptuously. If people say, pray for me at this time or pray for this, and I 
I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. And I go, God, would you just, that's presumptuously. If on his one day, even, I fail to keep myself in check by really doing what my pleasure is in spite of him, that's presumptuously. There are a million things. And by the way, if you haven't noticed, my list probably compares a lot to your list. Thank God for Jesus. Right? Right? But, but, what about when we say, and this is probably be the worst one of all. Well, I hear what you're saying there, goofy preacher. But see, I've got Jesus, and I don't have to worry about any of that stuff. You just did it. You just did. It's only by the sheer grace of Christ you're not charcoal in that chair. You just did it. Now let's look at where else this goes in demonstration. First, cha- First Samuel chapter 4. Like I said, I'm not going to read all of this. So Samuel is judging the nation of Israel. Eli has been told by God in chapter 3. Or I'm sorry. Uh, let's see. Verse, um, chapter 2, verse 29. But in chapter 3, in verse 1, it says, And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. Eli wasn't a good example to his kids. And his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were, were evil to the core. And in verse 13 of chapter 3 and 14, God says to Samuel, I have told him, Eli, that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows because his sons made themselves vile and he did not restrain them. Samuel was the the, the high priest and he did not restrain his own sons in laying with the women as they come to the court of the Lord and taking the sacrificial meat. They had these three-pronged treble hooks if you've ever been catfishing in the lakes back south, you use these big treble hooks. They seized them down into that pot and they pulled up whatever meat came up with it and they created the hooks in such a way that they got pretty much all of it. Meanwhile, you have to understand that Eli was morbidly obese and it would lead me to believe that so were the kids because the people were bringing their best and they were eating it all. They were being very presumptive before the Lord. And Eli, in not restraining his sons, were also being presumptive before the Lord. He wasn't restraining his kids. Christian parents. (laughs) Yes, we have to love them delicately. But we have to love them firmly. And when they're in sin and gross iniquity, it is your job to be a speed bump in their life. How you do that's your business. But I would say make it your business to first start on your knees before God to find out exactly how to conduct that business. Because they need shut down. And if that requires you to be fasting and praying until something happens, that's what you do because you're a mama and you're a daddy that professes Christ. Don't be negligent in your parental oversight. And therefore, in verse 14, I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Did you hear what God just said 
would happen to Eli's line of priests. They're shut down. It was so severe what they were doing that God actually removed the line of Samuel from being priest. It was so severe. Well, as we go forward, the, the, the Israelites are fighting the Philistines. We know about that. And the Israelites are losing. They're losing. Now, why are they losing? Because they're into idolatry. That's why they're losing. The reason why the Philistines were never completely conquered is because the, the children of Israel continually went back and tried to syncretize themselves with the gods of the land, of the peoples of the lands. And the Philistines God used to punish them. So they were a thorn in their side. So they're in battle in chapter 4. And it says in verse 1, Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Ebenezer. And the Philistines encamped in Aphek. And then it goes up, or in verse 2, it says, The Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. Now, you're supposed to be God's people. You're supposed to be conquering the land. And you're being conquered. Now, before when we read, when Joshua did it, they went up to Ai and they got defeated. The first thing they began to do was say, there's sin in the camp. And God showed them there's sin in the camp. And it's buried underneath one man's tent. Which should cause us to pause as an assembly of people before God, shouldn't it? One of the greatest questions that I think would be asked as a congregant to set in the midst of the congregation or as, or as the preacher. Is my sin robbing the congregation of God's best? They don't know. But God knows. And we saw what happened in Ai. And we're seeing what's happening here, except it's not just one person, it's so many. Well, so what happened? Verse 3, and when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, this is a classic question, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when, now notice this, now this is New King James, I'm reading, I'm not sure if the ESV says the same, but notice, here's what the New King James says. When it comes among us, it may save us from the land of our enemies. Yeah, New King James right there. And when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring up the Ark of the Covenant from the Lord, from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from our enemies. Now, some translations do say he, that he may save us. Here's what you need to know. The Ark of the Covenant, which was a very ornate box with cherubim on it, that was the symbol of God's presence among them. And they knew that. They knew that. This was, they called it the mercy seat for a reason. God was, was, to, was, was, was understood to be seated there between those angelic beings in mercy as the blood was applied so He didn't destroy them all. 
So they said, we're losing the war. Let's bring up the ark. It may save us. Something happened. They changed the very symbol of God's mercy to a relic of relief. I'm going to use this little story to try to illustrate. In high school, there was a family that was very religious. And, and, and one of the children was very promiscuous. And, the, and, the, and the, the child that was promiscuous, when challenged by her Christian friends, said, and I quote, Oh, it's okay. I have the Bible in the back seat. It may save us. You see the thinking there? Well, what happened was they brought the ark, but God wasn't with that box. Because remember, it is still just a piece of furniture. It's only, it's only powerful and consecrated when God's people are right. He had removed himself from it. So the Philistines took it. Yeah, that's right. And it says in verse 11, And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. They died, just like they said they would. And of course, I believe it was uh, uh, Phinehas' wife, or Hophni was giving birth, and one of the sons was named Ichabod, meaning the glory has departed from us. How appropriate that God did. And so the prophecy of Samuel was definitely settled. But notice the emphasis that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. Well, never presume upon God because in 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 7, when the Philistines took this ark, they set it up in their temple. And it says, And the men of Ashdod saw how it was. They said, The ark of God of Israel must not remain with us, for his, hands, his hand is harsh toward us and Dagon our God. Because when they put the temple, or they put the ark of God in the temple, their God Dagon that was up on a pedestal was found face down, broken in half, and his palms were turned up and his head was broken off. And they thought, well, this God's mean to our God. My first question is, then why should you have a God that can be defeated? It's like a real Barney Five moment, right? I just realized that there are a lot of people here now that may not know who Barney Five even is. Things are changing, Ren. And they were also being plagued with tumors and rats. Now, Here's the thing you have to understand. <laughs> this is the mercy of God here. Even in our wickedness. God had chosen the nation for himself. The Bible says even in the New Testament, even when we're not faithful, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Right? And so there's the ark captured. It's in the temple of Dagon. They don't want it there anymore. So they pull it out and suddenly they're all getting cancers and tumors and rats running wild. And they're like, get it away from us, when they don't know what to do. God's doing that because what did he say? What did he say in the beginning? Remember? What did he say? He said, By those who come near me, 
I must be regarded as holy. Do you think that's just his people? All people are under his sovereign rule. So there we are as we find them then. And uh, their God is being messed up. Their people are being afflicted. And he doesn't, they don't know what to do. So it says here in 1 ver, in in Samuel chapter 5, in verse 11 and 12. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of God of Israel and let it go back to his own place. Let it does not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were stricken with tumors. And the cry of the city went up to heaven. And then in chapter 6, Now the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months of this. Seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and diviners saying, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Well, there's a lot of narrative going on there to say, but I'm going to skip down to verse 5. And it says, You shall make images of your tumors and images of your rats that ravage the land. And you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you and from your gods and from your land. And then in verse 6 of chapter 6, Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and the Pharaoh hardened their hearts? They're speaking with more wisdom than even the children of Israel had been acting. Right? And then he says, when he did many mighty things among them. You guys remember this. Now, these are the lords of the Philistines, sort of their priestly caste going, you guys are so dumb. You should never have done it. Did they not? And so Egypt or uh, Pharaoh let the people go in verse 7. Now, therefore, and this is where things get interesting. Here's their solution to get the ark back to Israel. Make a new cart, take two milk cows which have never been yoked, and hitch the cows to the cart, and take the calves home away from them. And if you know anything about cows, you don't mess with the calves. And wherever the calf is, that's the calf is. That's where Mama's wanting to go. And the idea is, if uh, take the ark of the Lord. Now, verse eight's important. Set it on the cart. Notice this. And put the articles of gold which you are returning to him as a trespass offering in a chest by its side. Then send it away. Now notice that. It's very important. Verse 8. They took and they made images of these rats and these tumors. And they put it in a chest by the side of the ark. Well, as you read on through, the cattle, the cows... When they were let go, they didn't go for their babies. They went straight towards Israel. And they parked when it came to the area in question. But they put the chest by its side. They didn't look in the ark. They didn't open it. They didn't. They were being killed slowly by it. They just wanted it gone. And they did what they thought would be the best to do. What does it mean when on occasion unbelievers show more respect for God than his own people show? What does it mean? So look down here in verse 15. Now remember verse 8. They didn't look in it. So the Levites took down the ark of the Lord off of the cart that the Philistines had sent and the chest that was with it in which were the articles of gold, and put them on a large stone. Then the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices the same day to the Lord. So when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day. And then it says these are the tumors, and it talks all about that. And verse 19, now notice verse 19. 
Then he struck them, then God struck the men of Beth Shemesh. Why? Because they looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck 50,070 men of the people. And the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. That's why they said in verse 20. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? The Philistines didn't even look in it. And God's own people thought they could presume and go look in it. And so many times we think we can presume and say, I'm a Christian and say all manner of evil and act all manner of evil. Go home and sleep at night with a clear conscience. There's something wrong with that. We have to understand. We must approach him not presumptively, but very cautiously, very reverently, very holy. Well, There is no indication, as it says here, that the Philistines ever looked into the ark, but God's people did. If you you read, and I'm going to go there for it to make sense, in Exodus chapter 19, Exodus chapter 19, verse 21 and 22. The Lord is speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai. The people are gathered down at the base, okay? And the Lord said to Moses, go down... And warn the people, lest they break through to gaze at the Lord, and many of them perish. And let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. Now, if the ark represents the presence of God, and they know this, you don't be looking in that ark. You don't even touch it. You don't. You have to be consecrated. If you go to Numbers chapter 4. Verse 15. Says this. Now this is instructions on how to handle the ark. That God prescribed to the Levites. Specifically. And it says this. And when Aaron and his sons had finished covering the sanctuary. And all the furnishings of the sanctuary. When the camp is set to go, then the sons of Kohath shall come to carry them, but they shall not touch any holy thing, lest they die. These are the things in the tabernacle of meeting which the sons of Kohath are to carry, and one of those things was the ark. And it was supposed to be carried with poles designed for it. That's how it was supposed to be carried. So here's the big takeaway. They knew... How it was supposed to be dealt with. They knew. God had told them and told them and told them. Now, I asked, well, where were the Levites? I mean, they were fine getting it off the cart and stuff, but why did they let the men look in it? Maybe they weren't... I don't know. All I know is, is this. The men of Beth Shemesh did what they knew they were never supposed to do, and they did it presumptuously before the Lord with no respect, no reverence, Right out in broad daylight, and 50,070 people died. Because those who come to him, by by him, he must be regarded as what? Holy. In 1 Samuel 7, 1 through 4, then the men of Kirjoth-Jerim, because they said, well, (laughs) 
I guess I should go back uh, to verse 2 of chapter 7. So I'm I'm trying not to be confusing. Chapter 7, verse 2. Beginning in verse 1. The men of Kirjath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord after this, this episode and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. And so, and they were Levites, by the way. And so, so it was when the ark remained in Kirjath-Jerim a long time, it was there 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying... Now, this is why all this happened. This is the reason. If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the asterisks from among you and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve Him only, and He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the asterisks and served the Lord only. Notice the four conditions that God gave in the text. One, return to the Lord. Okay? Number two, put away the foreign gods among you. Question, why do you have foreign gods among you? You've seen what happens. Number three, prepare your heart. I was talking to Wren. One of the things that that has become so... uh, uh, I've become sensitive to in reading about the Sabbath or the Lord's Day is the fact that do you realize as a people we'll prepare to go to ball games. We'll prepare to go on a picnic. We'll prepare to go on a camp out. We'll prepare to go out on a movie and eat. We'll prepare to go to school. We'll prepare to go to work. Making lunches and such. Do, you, do we prepare to come To this right now today. Do we prepare. To come before the Lord. On his day. Do we prepare. How much do we even prepare. What does that look like. Saturday night. Number one. Guard your time. Don't stay out late. You know how the flesh will push back on you. Number two. Instead of. You shouldn't be watching nasty shows anyways. But. But come on. Start getting your heart in tune with that which is holy before God. Go to bed with thoughts that please Him. Read a psalm. Pray and ask God to open you up the next day. And then come reverently before the Lord. Do we prepare like that? Prepare your hearts. And then notice the third or fourth. Serve Him only. For the Lord our God is a jealous God. Yeah. Susanna Wesley kind of coincides with this. Whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, or takes off the desires for spiritual things, that thing is sin to you, however innocent it may be in itself. Our holy God. Now for the sake of time, I'm going to be fast. In 2 Samuel, we read that David wanted to go and get the ark of God from Kirjath-Jerim. And he did it with great enthusiasm. 
But he did not consult the word of God. And the priest didn't stop him. And there they put it on a cart again. Kidding me. Carts in the ark don't work. And they're carrying it along. And Uzzah, in an effort to stabilize the ark from falling off, puts his hand on it and dies. Drops dead. And then David was mad. Perez Uzzah. Which means, outbreak against Uzzah. So, David was very afraid, the Bible says too. He was very afraid. You should be afraid. They took the ark, parked it at uh, another place. And then David goes and says, and apparently he consults with the scripture. And he says to the Levites, you should have told us how to do this. You should have reminded me. Then they went and got the ark again, except this time they did it right. There's a way that the Lord of hosts, even under the new covenant of grace, is to be approached. And it is not presumptively. It is not arrogantly. You don't come to God in prayer or Bible study with your chest out and your chin up. You come reverently. You become before the potentate of potentates. You come consecrated. In the, in the Bible, we've, we've used this term consecration some, but in the Bible the word consecration means the separation of oneself from things that are unclean, Especially anything that would contaminate one's relationship with a perfect God. Consecration also carries the connotation of sanctification, holiness, or purity. Is it any wonder that we're seeing what we're seeing in the church today in America and in the West? There is no consecration. There's no preparation. And there's no realization of the one to whom we're coming before. I'm grateful here at Northridge that we are learning more about this. Because this isn't, I didn't, I didn't learn about any of this in the church I used to attend. Lastly, and this is it, 2 Corinthians 7.1. Therefore, having these promises, what promises? I'll just, real quick. Christ, blood, atoning for sin. That God won't kill you, okay? People often say, what, what do I need to be saved from? I need to be, what do I need to be saved from? I need to be saved from my sin. You need to be saved from God, okay? Honestly. Therefore, having these promises, beloved... Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. And notice this word, perfecting holiness in what? So does the fear of God belong under the new covenant? Pure so. And perfecting, I looked that up in the Greek and it's just a normal Greek word. But it really means, kind of made me think of those who uh, practice stuff. You know, better at free throws. Uh, practice golf, you practice uh, taking pictures, you practice music, you practice 
You live every day. You're, you're seeking to be. You're seeking to be more. You're perfecting holiness. You're identifying areas of your life that no, there are no go. That needs to stop. Your, your thoughts. Taking every thought captive. You, you're involved. You're involved in what God has called you to be. Martin Luther wrote, this life, is therefore, this life, therefore, is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness, right? Okay. Not health, but healing. Not, not being, but becoming. Not rest, but exercise. We are not what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. The process is not yet finished, but it is going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet gleam in glory, but all is being purified. That's coming before our holy God every day. Because of Christ, we can. Do you know Christ? Do you know Him really? If you don't, I pray God that He smites your heart and calls you to Himself. Cry out to Him in mercy. Plead for Him to save you from your sin and to cleanse you. And saint, remember our holy God. JT's going to play a little. And as he does, the altar is open. This is a response time. You, you have to deal with what you've heard. Take the opportunity to do so.